Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Thank you all for tuning in to episode 194 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring AFL Premiership player, AFL coach, a woman with a truly incredible story to tell, Danielle Laidley. Hang on, Laidley behind, open goal. Then Laidley gets it. The Eagles are coming back. Now, this was an episode I had circled in the calendar for months. It was something I was tremendously looking forward to, but like any episode covering sensitive themes, you have a little bit of trepidation going into it. You don't want to upset the guest by being unintentionally insensitive or asking questions that can cause anyone to be uncomfortable. Not the aim of the show. But as soon as she walked in, Danielle made it really clear right from the very start to ask whatever I wished, however I wished to ask it, not to get hung up on language. This is one very strong woman who has walked a very, very difficult path. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Danielle is the subject of a truly incredible documentary that you can watch right now on Stan. It is called Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes. Watch it with your family, share it with your friends, talk about it with your crew. For mine, after watching it, my interpretation, it's about acceptance of oneself and of others. Five stars from the Howie Games. Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes on Stan. Thanks to Lukey Tunnicliffe, an EP of the doco from Jam TV, and a good mate for helping make this episode happen. He's a good kid, along with Tony Box and Shannon Beck from TLA Worldwide. But the biggest thanks must obviously go to Danielle for her trust, for her patience, her explanations, and her strength. So many lost and left behind, and no one seemed to care. Those who should seems like they're blind, pretending they're not there. Can't they see they hold the key? Could make things better if they try. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? There are some mature themes in this episode, mental health and drug use in particular. As I get older, I reckon for our family, just our family, it's best to discuss these things rather than shy away from them though. I guess my kids are getting a little bit older also. But for my family, best to discuss it. Your choice, though. Whatever suits you and your family. Enjoy the story of Danielle May Laidley, a truly remarkable person. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games A true superstar Her documentary, Two Tribes, Danielle Laidley Is quite extraordinary Her book, Don't Look Away Has had me reading far too much And not doing what I should be doing in life She joins me on the Howie Games For her first full podcast situation Of which I'm enormously privileged Danielle May Laidley Welcome. Danielle May Laidley, yes. Thanks, Howie. Welcome Thanks for having show. us. Yes. Ha- um, I normally say how you're feeling about this, but I've got to tell you, I have some anxiety around this. Really? I do because I loved you as a footballer. Mm-hmm. I was amazed by you as a coach, and after reading and watching, I'm floored by you as a person, and I... I don't want to be clumsy with the way I talk about certain things. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about it? Um, no, I'm relaxed. I'm I'm fine. If you uh, make any mistakes, particularly with like pronouns and stuff like that. Yep. Um, one one thing I've sort of come to um, come to reason, if you like, is that like yourself, who have known me for a lot of years yeah. in the first phase of my life, and now it's quite new to um, all and sundry, but it's not new to me. And people are going to make mistakes and that's fine too. I've got a pretty good radar when people generally make a a mistake because, you know, phase one versus phase two, um, because they're they're learning um, and so am I. I said the doco, which we'll talk about in depth, but there's, there's certain 
people need to watch it. It, it had me in tears at certain t- stages, which I'll tell you which parts really got me. But um, you talk about that and you go back and see your mum and um, she's giving you a big hug and then she refers to you in the masculine and yeah. you just gently pulled her up and she's like, oh, sorry, love, I'm still getting used yeah, to it. I'm still yeah. getting used to it. And mum still is. Right. Um, she'll flip from Danielle, he, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I used to pull her up, but she's nearly 80. Yeah. Um, and her memory's not as good as it used to be. Now I just let it go because um, she. I know she's trying her hardest and if she slips up every now and again, that's okay. You know, so big. We all make mistakes. I've made plenty. There's so much to talk about. But before we get into the what, what I was, I was saying to my wife about this, and I loved in in your book, and I love it when I get text messages with you. I wanted to start something we both love, and we both love the game of cricket. And, yes. and you messaged me during the summer, oh, it's great that you guys on Fox were able to speak to, speak to players out in the middle or, or how good's Paddy Cummins and uh, uh, let's talk cricket just, to, just to, as we eat into things. Yeah. Growing up as a kid in Perth, who, who were your cricket idols? Uh, Dennis Lilly. Dennis Lilly. Yeah, Dennis Lilly, <laughs> you know, Rod Marsh. You know, there was a time when I was growing up uh, in Perth and the WA Shield team made up, I think it was seven, maybe eight of the Australian cricket team right. at that time. And it was just remarkable. I, I would go and watch uh, WA play in the Sheffield Shield and I'd sit up in the grandstands all day and just watch every ball. Um, you know, that was after I'd finished playing cricket, you know, in the morning. Yeah. Then that sort of subsided a bit because I was playing um, – you know, juniors under 16s in the morning and then um, I'd have an hour break and then I'd be going play seconds um, for Wanneroo at that stage because um, we didn't have an A-grade side in the, you know, the pennant league in, in Western Australia. Um, but look, I just love it. I, I I can be a couch potato, like through the ashes. Yeah. Donna and I watched basically every ball and it was it was good that we were actually in Perth because it started oh, like great a- time zone. Yes, perfect time zone. Um, you know, so at six o'clock it had come on and, you know, we'd we'd be up till it, till it finished. Yeah, I, I, cricket was actually my first, my first passion. Well, I didn't understand how good you were either. So yeah. tell me about like junior representative cricket. Yes. So the first time I represented WA was in under 11s. Right. What did you, bat or bowl or what were we? Um, so I opened the bowling and bat anywhere between five and seven. Bowling heat or seamers or little swingers um, or? Heat early. Um, <laughs> heat in under 11s. But then it became, you know, your typical left arm in swing, seeming bowler. So Mitchell um, Stark sort of type setup. Yeah, Mitchell. Yeah, okay. great fan of Mitchell. Um, you know, and you can go back even further, Bruce Reed and Brendan yeah. Julian from Western Australia, yes. left-handers. Yeah, so... You know, I, I would say no, nowhere near what you know what they were able to do in their um, adult careers. But you know, along those along those lines, what type of batter were you? Put it this way: um, I didn't block much. Right, uh, so you were <laughs> suited to this franchise to IPL oh, star. Yeah, look, I, I, I wish that was around. You know, <laughs> it's interesting. I, I, I remember I was in Chapel Street one day. This is going back many many years, and I was doing some shopping. In, and I was in the shop and. Shane Warne and, and Aaron Hamill walked past and uh, we ended up having a chat for ages and Warney was telling me he'd just been in England playing this new format of cricket, of this course. T20, you know, to start, you know, after work, early evening in the summer in England and this is going to catch on to the rest of the world. And I was sort of intrigued by that then. And now, you know, we have we have all these different formats. You know, I wish they were around when um, when I was playing. And, and that may have persuaded me. I was just, you know, I ended up going with footy because, you know, I'm 17, I'm in year um, 11 and 12 at school and I'm playing senior football for West Perth pre-Eagles days. You know, crowds of 20,000 people. And then at that point in time, you know, there was basically, you got, if you weren't in the best, dozen cricketers in Australia. You know, exactly. Yeah, you know, it was very difficult to make a living um, doing that. So it was um, it was quite an easy decision. But I remember uh, Mick Malone, um, who was working for the Wacker at that stage, when he found out that I wasn't going to play cricket anymore and he pestered me for months and <laughs> months and, yeah, to, to keep playing cricket. But, you know, it was it was a fait accompli really uh, for me to be – 
you know, playing senior footy at that age. And your relationship with footy. So as you walk in here now, this will come out in a week and a half's time, but it's semi-final uh, week in the AFL and, and my man Tommy is a mad Carlton supporter, as is my wife. They're playing Melbourne and he needed to be on the website at midday to start trying to buy tickets and he's, he's running about six devices, Danielle. What, what is your relationship with not not the administration and what you're doing with the game but actually watching the game and do you watch it from a coaching perspective? <laughs> you're probably asking the wrong person. You probably need to ask Donna that. Yeah, maybe. maybe. She, she will say, I have my coach's hat on like most games, okay. Uh, particularly the the real, the, the big, really good games. Um, you know, I watch it uh, probably a hell of a lot more closely than I'll do just a game that, you know, I may have not a less interest in, yep. um, but that uh, of less importance perhaps to um, the round or the game that, that particular week. Um, but Donna and I watch pretty much... Every kick in the um, in the AFL, uh, the men's and and the women's. That's a lot of footy um, to get through. Yes, it is. Uh, particularly when the seasons are just overlapping yes. in the last in the last few weeks. But we really enjoy it, and it's been great in the last probably two years um, from a social perspective. Just reconnecting with so many people. You know, in, in in footy, whether they're you know in the media, whether they're um, you know they work for the AFL or they're administrators, um, you know, in Clubland. We're at the AFLW season launch, yep. and I spent the most of the night with Brendan Gale and Tom Tom Harley, just talking footy. You know, mm-hmm. um, and then we get the social aspect of it, and we really, really enjoy that part of it at the moment. Yeah, would you like to coach? Again, would would as Danielle, um, I would, yeah, I would. Now that, because we always thought that, um, you know, there's been probably different stages, um, which have been well documented now, and the probably this last stage where everything was probably still on hold has been for the documentary. Yeah. Um. So we always thought 2024 would be. Uh, the year that, okay, well, what's out there? What can we do? You know, we we do a lot of uh, diversity and inclusion training now in the corporate world, do a little bit of stuff for the AFL. And so we've, we have our own business in Perth, which we've been growing at a rapid rate. So now once the doco comes out, it's sort of, okay, 2024, what's, what's out there? I would, I would love to be able to coach again. Will it be able to be fit in? Because we spend half our time in Perth and half our time in Melbourne. Um, so that might be difficult. But, you know, if something was presented and it fit for us, because I certainly do have a passion um, to coach young people in a, in a football sense. But also what I'm doing now is I get to coach uh, people and, mm. and young people um, every single day in the jobs uh, that I'm doing now. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. You do, what you don't get is that cut and thrust of the win-loss every week, the up and downs that you do when you're, when you're coaching a football team. Bowenhead Seagulls won the premiership last year, little coastal town, got knocked out in a prelim this year, might need a bit of sizzle. Yeah, well, not sure we can afford the pay packet. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be about the wouldn't be about the pay. <laughs> but you know, something at that like when I when you ask me, uh, would I like to coach again? Yeah, it's not saying oh, AFL men's, AFL women's, uh, VFL, WAFL. It's just getting back in a football environment, grassroots. You know, um, I, I, I can honestly say the year that I coached Maribyrnong. Uh, in 2018, before then COVID came in, I, out of my 30-odd, 30-odd, 40 years of football, you know, I could easily say that would be my top half dozen years. Like, we didn't make the finals or anything, but just... Why? What um, what, what, what struck you? What got you? um, The game? We had a a great group of young men that um, were very eager to learn. Um, and listen, and to watch them grow and the ups and downs of it, and then the social aspect of a local footy club um, was just awesome. Like really, I just loved it. Mm. My my favourite moment in, in football, it used to be when Buddy kicked his 100th and I got to have a chat with him on the ground, blew me away, but my favourite moment in football now, and, and I didn't know that it was in um, – 
in the two tribes doco is when Luke Tunnicliffe, a very close friend of both of ours and produces Friday Night Football on Triple M, when he said, right, uh, Daniel Laidley is going to come and do special comments this week. And it was myself, Luke Darcy, Nathan Brown, Damien Barrett and Jason Dunstall. And we were excited. We had some trepidation. Mm. What was that like for you to wander in the box? Because I remember we were a bit like the start of this. We were tiptoeing through it because we wanted to make you feel loved and comfortable. Mm. Welcome to Triple M Football, Danny Laley, who will be with us throughout the night. Danny, it is wonderful to see your smiling face. We're all excited to have you here. You look fantastic. How are you feeling about uh, being on the radio for the first time since 2014? Oh, it's great to be back into the um, to the AFL family and the Triple M family. Thank you for having me. Um, it's exciting. I feel very comfortable actually sitting here. Um, but then when the footy started, yep. I, you, you're sitting behind me. I can't yep. see you. I pause. And bang, you, you're all over the game, yeah. like you'd never stepped away from the game. You know, the, I, I, that was my favourite moment in footy today. As it goes across the line, in the pocket. Boys, there's a bit of cat and mouse going on here. Um, Norton, when he plays deep, it's blank. And then uh, Shaki goes to Sicily, but then when Norton comes up the ground, that's why he was on Sicily and he's able to take that mark. I love radio. I've done it quite a bit over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And I find watching the game or unpicking the game... Still very easy. Um, it seemed easy for you. you when, you're, when you're watching it um, and watching it unfold and can, can look at it objectively rather than emotionally because you're not attached to either side. They work their way through it eventually. Darcy, you could just see that last kick was just a turn and go. Um, the Hawks have been able to slow them down, but then the Hawks defenders got found wanting just because there was a little bit more quicker ball moving inside forward 50 and a bit more movement by the, uh, by the dogs forward. What you said, though, at the start, um, I suppose the nerves had probably passed by then because I'd done it quite a few times where uh, the biggest, the most nerves I had was I I remember um, being in an Uber going to meet about a dozen players that I played with at North. And if I didn't catch an Uber that night, I reckon I would have turned around and gone home. I, I was that petrified. Petrified of what? Um, what they would say, how they would feel, um, and how would I I would react. Um, but after like thirty seconds, and I've probably learned to um to have a few strategies going into that those situations now. Like a lot of the boys didn't know whether to give me a hug, shake my hand, so they'd put their hand out and I'd sort of slap it away, give me a hug, and that we'd have a laugh, and that sort of just broke broke the ice, and it was a little bit similar that night in the box, you know, and I think that I can be the driver, you know, of that to say, you know what, it's okay. Which you did, you, know? you actually said that yeah, on air. I, I'm, we're all friends here and we can have a conversation, you know. I haven't, don't forget, I haven't been able to have those conversations where particularly that, that night it was the example that we're using that I can talk about football and playing and coaching and then other parts of my life which have been so compartmentalised for many, many, many years, life's so much easier when you're not having to think about um, who you've been with, where did, where did you go out, who are you with, mm. and you're having to make sure all the dots connect um, is very difficult. It's funny because there was no doubt that you would know the game inside out, but often what is difficult for people that are so involved in the game is being able to enunciate it clearly so the likes of me and people listening at home can understand what you're talking Mm. about, which you did beautifully. You brought up a term that night. It's the first time I'd heard it. Um, And when you said it, I was like, okay, Um, and I'm across it now. Um, But you brought up the term gender dysphoria. Mm. So a lot of people won't have heard that term. I hadn't yep. heard it till that night. What is it, Danielle? So gender dysphoria is a medical condition that how you feel on the inside is not represented of what uh, people see um, on the outside. Two, two vastly different things. And that's the thing that people struggle with. And some, pe- some people have it just a little bit. You know, if I can say on a scale of one to a hundred, if you're at the lower end of the scale, you may have some dysphoria, but you can get on with your life and you're happy and there's no need to transition. Um, But at the other end of the scale, you know, at say a hundred, you know, you 
despise what you see in the mirror, your body doesn't match with how you feel on the inside. And you know, along with that beca- becomes uh, depression, anxiety, self-sabotage, uh, loneliness, because you don't know what's going what's going on. You, you talked about in your book, you sat at, you went and saw an endocrinologist? Yes, so you always pronounced it? Yes. And you were at 75. Yep. So, and that's, that's um, a lot to bear being, being so high and carrying that, th- those thoughts and feelings for um, so many years. Um, and the reality is you can't outrun gender dysphoria. It, it, it will get you in some way, shape or form, you know, and because mine was so high, invariably what happens is it's like this 24-7 radio some days it's you can have it very low, yep, and you can get on and do things in your life. Other days it is so loud you cannot function, and the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions that come along with that, you know, you just you just can't live um, a normal life. Now I, I I never tried to outrun it, and that was probably mainly because you know, growing up in the early 70s and then being a teenager in the 80s and, um, you know, into the 90s and, and 2000s. It wasn't until the internet came around where you could start to scratch away and read and find out uh, these feelings that I was I was having. You know, I, I remember um, I was living in Perth. I don't exactly remember how, how old I was, um, but I remember I was on my – way to training at, at West Coast, I think it might have been in the really early days. And I went into the news agent, might have been to buy a paper or something, and there was a, a magazine um, and that was either Playboy or Penthouse. And, you know, back in those days they'd have the uh, plastic clear wrapping on it. So they say. So, so you're telling say. me. Yes. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> um, Those were innocent days, yeah. Danielle. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, there was um, a picture of this gorgeous woman on the front. Yep. And her name was uh, Tula and it had the term, which was used in those days, as transsexual. And I looked at it and thought, what is that? I need to get that book, you know. So I got my hands on it and it's it's about a transgender woman um, called Carolyn Cossey, uh, was from the UK, and she'd just finished filming a um, a Bond movie. She was one of the Bond girls. Um, but no one knew she was transgender and she was outed by the um, – uh, the British tabloids. Right. Um, yeah, and that was sort of the first real, you know, reading some of her quotes and that was like, oh, my God, that that's me. That, that's me. So how old would it's, you have been? Uh, I reckon 18. Can I get you to uh, – I was going to read this to you, but it's, it, it's better coming from you. This is two paragraphs from your book mm-hmm. that to me, this is – when I read that, that's the first time I really fully grasped what was within you, yep. Danielle. So if you could read me that, that would be fantastic. This other self sits there throbbing, a lump on my waist trying to get out, wanting air and light and love, like a conjoined twin. I couldn't have quite absorb who's still alive and whose heartbeat is growing stronger. This is another person walking alongside me um, at times now. I can throw my arm around her and hold her, this little vulnerable version of me, and sometimes I do. So I read those two paragraphs 15 times. Yep. And I gained a much greater understanding Mm. of you, Yep. I felt. Mm -hmm. So you talk in Two Tribes about as a kid, a little Mm. five or six-year-old, and I don't know if it was an Avon lady or, yes, that's it. or, or what yep. it was in your house with your mum and her girlfriends and nail polish. Mm-hmm. So I, in my ignorance, I haven't thought, when is this Danielle? But mm. I haven't understood that it was Danielle from the start. Thank you. That's what I didn't understand. You've got it. 
you've got it. That's it. You've got it in one. So, you know, and that's that's the that's the gender identity. That's the gender dysphoria when how you feel on the outside, on the inside. And again, remembering, you know, back from five, six, seven, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different examples that I could go through if we had, we had time. You use, um, the, you use the example that you used about yep. the nail polish. So it was the Avon party. <laughs> so the Tupperware months. party was probably on the Monday and then yes, the Avon lady right. came around on the Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just infatuated with this woman and what she was doing and it stirred something inside me that I have no recollection of it happening prior to that. And then, um, you know, the ladies go off and, you know, she does a sales pitch and gets her orders and that and they're, you know, drinking um, sparkling wine or <laughs> Moselle or whatever it was back in, the, <laughs> in those days. What a uh, time the yeah. 70s was before going to pick up the kids from school. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, anyway, there was this, there was the, the red nail polish was just left on the table. So I thought... I have to have that. Um, so you sort of get closer and closer and sort of just swiped it off the table and sort of run into the to the bedroom and painted the nails. And at that moment it was like, what's this? I feel safe. I feel at home. And, you know, as, as a very young child at that point in time, those are my most vivid memories. Um, but then it turned to fear when I realised that when it dried, I couldn't just <laughs> wipe it off with my um, uh, with my finger. So the um, evidence of the crime was plastered all across your fingers, didn't yes. um, That's not good. So anyway, you know, um, being quick thinking, um, I was able to get out the back and... Um, get some sand and some rocks and sort of took most of it off. And, um, yeah, so I went out the front and threw it in, in the pampas grass. Um, but there was lots of uh, different things like that, like the Carolyn Cossie, which happened later. There was at times um, being dropped off to the babysitter um, and there was, you know, three or four kids there and it was, you know, pirates and cowboys and Indians or... You know, there was dresses and stuff, and I was always, no, uh, because I always felt comfortable in that. It, um, and so as you go through, you know, there was another time where my uh, older cousin Vicky, um, for some reason, dressed myself and her brother up, make up, and, and it was all fun and games and everything until I looked in the mirror and thought, and I'm probably nine or ten at this, this point of time. And it was like, oh, my God, that's me. Right. And the, the, the more you have these um, light bulb moments, it's a feeling of being safe. It's a feeling of it's, it's, it's peaceful. Because um, I had a lot of stuff going on in my life as a youngster back in, in those days, mum and dad splitting up and, you know, dealing with these feelings and... I have no doubt, you know, looking back, there was a fair bit of depression and anxiety and my ability not to trust anyone, um, family breakup. The only person I probably trusted through that period was uh, my nana, who I lived with for, for a long time. You know, the love and feeling safe with her was, you know, something that um, I hold very dear to my heart. And... You know, as these times go on, you want to get back to that space and feeling how, how you do on the inside, how it was on the outside. There was many times when uh, Donna or even my mates would say, you know, I want to come over after school um, and I'd say no, too much homework or I've got cricket training or football training and it was a time where, you know, I would be mucking around with it was with makeup or uh, clothing but, and just looking in the mirror, just being mesmerised by this this underlying feeling that 
I still didn't know what it was, but it made me feel safe and at peace in this world that I was that I was living in. Back to Danielle's story shortly. Next up on the show, a Queensland icon, a legend of Australian motorsport, a much-loved man who has a bag full of stories and a wonderful way of telling them. His name is Dick Johnson. He is a touring car great. Well, I had a servo. I had a Shell service station. Yeah. Right? 1980, I said to my brother, I said, OK, you are running the servo now and I'm going uh, working at home. I'm going racing. a race car, you know? Right. Which we did, and as it turns out, you know, it was a pretty good sort of a rig, and because I would sort of mortgage the house and all that sort of stuff, and I said to Julie, I said, "Well, this is it. This is our big shot. We should be half a chance here, you know." So we went to Bathurst, and uh, I think it was ten grand for pole position. Yeah, ten grand for pole, and uh, second on the grid was worth jack shit, you know. So. And where'd you finish? Second. <laughs> <laughs> That is Dick Johnson next up on the show. Let's get back to Danielle. I find that so much of your story is involved in your journey, but so much of that journey, we are ostensibly a sports podcast (laughs) and there's a lot of footy to be talked about here. Yep. So footy, you're a gun, you, you represent WA in a state game and then the Eagles come along. Mm-hmm. And you become an inaugural West Coast Eagle. Yep. How big were the Eagles when they entered the AFL competition in Perth? Huge, huge. It took the whole state, um, hence the name, West Coast, yep. by storm. Okay, where we go. The start of the season then for both these sides. The start of a piece of history for the West Coast Eagles as Lee wins the first tap away. We just four. come off a group of us. Um, in 1985, we went across to Adelaide and played in a state game. So you're representing West Australia. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the yellow with the yep. swan on there. Absolutely. The sand grape. So I'm like, I'm a baby. I'm just 18. But like, who's in your team? Brian Peake, Morris Rioli, Rob Wiley, but also a lot of young players like Laurie Keane, Andrew McNish, uh, Chris Mainwaring, a lot of the players that went on to become the West Coast Eagles, and we we won that as rank outsiders. And then we played Victoria later that year in one of those great State of Origin games, and I think it was 23 goals to 21 or uh, something like that. Victoria? Um, Dermot Brereton, Dale Waitman, uh, Brian Royal, Simon Madden, so uh, Greg height, Williams. It's the height of interstate football, Absolutely. State of Origin. And here I am as an 18-year-old baby playing. Rucks go to it. One wide of the pack by Madden. A chance for Davidson over the ball. Gets it out to Laidley. Taken high, Dean Laidley. Wants to play on. Goes by hand to Baker. Baker gets around Waitman. Confronted by Williams. The hand Weighing? Like, oh, probably 69 kilos ring of wet, probably. <laughs> um, that hair plastic. Yes, yes, Whipping yes. up and down the yep. wing. So then what happened with that? That was in, like, the June, July. And then very quickly there was a lot of talk about this team being formed. And a lot of us were getting interest from Victoria at that point in time. Um, it, it came about around very, very quickly. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be in the one of the first 35 in the inaugural squad. And it was, um, you know, there's dancing girls, there's, you know, there's cheer squads. Yep. The hardest thing was that a lot of those guys, you know, even though I was only 18, 19, I was playing um, against them for when I was 16 at senior footy. And there was a, a, quite a bit of a rivalry, mm. um, particularly at that time with Subiaco and West Perth, I mean, uh, East Fremantle, because mm-hmm. they'd won the previous two premierships, you know. So there's a lot of, like, rivalry and how do we all come together to then... So it was, it was huge. And then to have Ross Glendinning come back as a captain and Phil Narkel, uh, John Anea, um, and they were great people to have because they were great role models for us as, as young people. But we were superstars in Perth. And it was really interesting. You can, you can laugh about this now. Um, you know, we used to stay at Royal Parade Travel Lodge right across the road from Princess Park. Yep. Um, 
And, you know, I remember in the first year, like, we'd all go down to the Vic Markets on before the game. Like, a bit of shopping. go shopping, <laughs> come back with our stuff and um, take it home. And, you know, footy, it wasn't secondary, yep. but it was a steep learning curve for us, you know. Um, yeah, but it was uh, it was pretty cool. So when I said I, I, um, I used to joke about with this with people, but now I understand, and this floored me. And I would have never picked this. I always, I loved watching you play for the Eagles mm-hmm. because I was, and you can probably argue, still am reasonably skinny. Yeah. And there's all these massive brutes playing mm. AFL, especially in the eighties when it wasn't that running game, and yep. the, no, it was big. It was mm. a big man sport, mm. and there was this long haired character for West Coast, mm. Laidley, that was skinny. As skinny. So you, to, I used to say to mates, this Dean Laidley, mm-hmm. as you played, is a pin-up boy, as you played, for all skinny men, showing <laughs> that us skinny bastards might be able to play in the top league. Oh, I like that. Yeah. But reading why you were so wiry blew me away, obviously. Yep. So explain to people why my pinup of skinny blokes was skinny. Uh, well, I, we negotiated I, I, a few I, he yes, and she's there. I, yeah, think, I no, think we no, got that's through fine. okay. Yeah, we did. We did great. We did well. Um, so um, genetically, um, my all my family are very wiry, very thin, um, particularly um, my father. And, you know, I, I was like that through – Playing in the state school boys at fifteen years of age for WA, very very thin, very very wiry, not much not much muscle on. And then you know going to West Perth at sixteen years of age, the first thing they said, right, come here, you put me in the gym and lock the door, and basically left me in there. Low um, reps, heavy weights, and eat. Yes, um, and I just wasn't a part of that. Um, Why? Because I didn't want my body to blow out to be um, this huge thing, and look, I, I probably would have really saw, and and I did, you know, it wasn't when I say I didn't do it. There was times where you you, you did, but I was I was always very mindful of not becoming this Mister Hulk, why, so to speak, because of my gender dysphoria. And my want to stay, let's say, as feminine as I as I could. So that was one thing that I could always have control over through, you know, probably from 15 and 16 right through my whole playing career. Can you can um, you imagine, Danielle? Like it's a different time now, but imagine just rolling out to um, like who were your coaches, like Todd or Malthouse? And I, I know the love you had for Mick Malthouse in yep. your book, but imagine just pulling him aside and saying, you know what, coach, I, I don't want to put on bulk because mm. I want to have a more feminine frame. Like yeah. in a professional 1980s <laughs> AFL football. Yeah. Well, you obviously can't have that conversation. Well, I wouldn't but, have gone down too well. well. I, I, <laughs> no, but it I, would have just I, blown I minds. You know, and and I, I I would always have the conversation with with Mick. He, you know, particularly when he was coaching at West Coast, even though I didn't play that many games under him because I did my knee. But he, you talk um, about like he, he yeah he loved yep the way you played football. Um, you know, I thought right, yep, I've got to get stronger because otherwise I will I won't last in 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 the game. And I first started playing AFL football at. Um, I think 72 kilo, and I never, ever he, uh, cracked 80. And how tall are you? 180. Yeah, so you're yep. – they, they always generally yep. say with AFL mm. football, 180, mm. take 100 off, you should play at at least 80 kilos. Yep. So I never was able to put that weight up. Well, I, I perhaps could have, but I just didn't invest – the right amount of time in, into it. That you invested in the rest of your game. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, when I did, once I did my knee, my my thinking 
changed a little bit because mm-hmm. when I did my knee, I probably lost about five or six metres off my kick and I thought, you know, if I'm going to go on and play another 150 games or whatever it was, you know, my legs need to be nice and strong and I was able to, you know, get them get them strong, you know. Skinny young person back those days, um, You're good you know, squatting, now, you know, 150, 160 kilos right. back in those days, which is, is pretty good. But your pins now, when I see in high heels, good pins. Yeah. <laughs> it's paid off. It's paid off. Like good pins. Thank good you. pins. So, <laughs> you know, we, we don't have the, I don't, I can't indulge you to tell your full story, but you, you get married young, mm-hmm. um, you start to have a family kids, you're playing professional football in this man-eat-man, man, like you, you describe it in in your book, Don't Look Away, as well as in Two Tribes, um, Kill or Be Killed mm-hmm. is your approach to the game. When do you f- begin to nourish the real you? When do you start and how do you start buying clothes and when do you go out for the first time yeah. as you... Yeah. Um, pretty complex stuff. You know, yeah, um, to keep it quite simplistic, um, through my late teenage years, there started to be some nourishment there. Just following the sense of the, the, this feeling and emotion that I would get from it. And it's really interesting, um, and I'm happy to share this. Um, Thank you. Some Some people see it as a uh, a, a fetish and, and, and a sexual fetish at at that and and you know from reading and that I, I I can I can understand that but for me it was it was never about about that it was not like oh get turned on to yep. that it was just this overwhelming feeling of a sense of calmness and and a feeling of of me um and it was always it was always difficult buying clothes whenever you did and um, it was always, oh, I'm looking for something for my girlfriend. Well, you're a recognisable figure as well. Yes. You're yes. Dean Laidley, the West Coast Eagles yep. star. Yep. So you go into a shop and say, oh, I need a, a crop top from a girlfriend. Yep. She's a similar size to me. Yep. Right. That's it. You and hit the nail where, on the head. And then yep. where do you wear your crop top? Um... So generally, um, you know, through the early 20s and that, um, finding time to do that. Young family. That was, that was difficult. Um, you know, but I will say, you know, that, that happened for, for a few years. Um, then towards the end of my playing career to my, into my, started to my coaching career, not at North at that point in time yet. At Collingwood, maybe, mm-hmm. um, or just before that, um, I was really we were, we were really struggling at home. Yep, and life's not going too well. And I said to uh, some of some uh, girls who I had as mentors, um, and not not even as mentors, as counsel for me to just have a chat to them, just to when I was like at at. At breaking point, and I, and I remember one um, time I said to him, I, I can't do this anymore, this life. I can't do football. I can't do home. I can't blah, 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 blah. And they're going, no, 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 no. We'll help you through it. Um, and I was so grateful for that. Um, I can say then it blossomed from there. So hold, hold on to it blossoming from there. Footy, you missed out through injury on a premiership at West Coast. Yep. Briefly, how did that affect you as an athlete? Um, yeah, it, it really spiralled me. And for a lot of years, even after I won one with, with, with North, I um, was fortunate enough to. So if I go back to 87 with the Eagles start, yep. played in their first game, in the first squad, played in their first finals series in 88, um, you, you're building a a career, if you like. Malthouse comes along. I probably play the best eight or nine games uh, consecutively that I've played, and I felt like, you know, I was arriving. And then did my knee, 
So then I missed out on the 1990 final series, the 91 grand final, and I played uh, 16 of the 20 games in 92 um, and missed out on that premiership. Were you at the ground? I was at the ground. I was in the emergencies. Um, and so if it, there'd been a, for those that don't follow the footy, if there'd been a late withdrawal, you would have been playing yep. in what turned out to be West Coast Eagles' first ever premiership. Yeah. And that day, you know, in, in my sporting life, it was one of the worst days. Um, How'd you feel? That I've had to endure. Oh, you know, upset, um, distraught that, you know, you work hard, you know, for, for all those years and, you know, being in that first group where we we had nothing, there was nothing that resembled a football club except for the people and we went through a lot of ups and downs through that period of time to get to that point um, and to miss out on it is doesn't leave a very nice taste in your mouth, I would say that. It progresses. You go to North Melbourne, you walk into Arden Street, Bones of their ass, that football club, but um, you win a premiership. Suck it up the ground, and there it is. North are champions. I think my favourite moment of joy from two tribes is when you and Anthony Stevens and Wayne Schwoss go out into the middle of the MCG, and from a TV production point of view, it could have been really cheesy. I spoke to Luke about this, mm-hmm. Tunnicliffe, and it was my favourite part because it was so genuine and you were recreating the photo of the moment when you three had won the premiership mm-hmm. and you're talking about what it meant and I loved it. Like, I, it yeah. made me genuinely smile and laugh as Steve-O was talking and then Schwatter and I had my arm up here and I had my arm and I was trying to hug you here. What did, after the, from a purely sporting perspective, Danielle, as an athlete, what did losing a grand final into winning a grand final provide for you? Yeah, at, the, at that time, I thought, and, and let's not forget, at the, I'll say at this point in time, um, 29 at this point, my gender dysphoria was roaring. It was hard to get through days. Little Danielle, as I can now look back and, you know, the stuff that I read before, that she was walking side by side, um, but, you know, she wanted, needed attention and that made life really difficult for me. Um but I always thought a premiership would complete me and perhaps it did for a couple of months, you know, parties and best and fairest and footy trips and stuff like that, which coincidentally the 96 premiership and the footy trip was the first and only one I ever went on. Was it? Yep. Where'd you go? Uh, I went to Hawaii and it, it was it was average right. at best. Right. Um, I couldn't think of anything worse of hanging out with 40 guys Drinking beer and um, <laughs> well, I'd rather be out doing other stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get that. So you win a premiership and then you become a coach, which mm. is first where I had the privilege of dealing with you because I used to sit in press conferences and there were some tough coaches at the time. You asked a question, that'd be brutal. You were always, as a coach, you could be mean and angry with that look, but you were never like that to the media, to especially the young journalists. You'd mm. ask a question, you always treat it with respect and answer it mm. and not all did at that time. That was when I was first like, oh, wow, this this football that I loved is now coach and they're answering my questions in a press mm. conference. What made you such a good coach, like 140, 150 games as coach? Why were you a, good, uh, no, why were you a great coach? Because that's how your players describe you. Oh, you know, I wouldn't say a great coach. Would um, you not? No. Um, you took a club yeah, with nothing to nearly everything. Yes, and it was a hard time. The AFL on the Gold Coast and, you know, no money and uh, that sort of stuff. 89% of the salary cap we were playing at that point in time, yep. which, you know, is these days two gun players. Uh, uh, well, that's what I mean. And you're taking this team yeah. reasonably often to finals. Um, so you're doing something right. I wouldn't say I'm a great coach, as, as we just spoke about, but I, I would say I was – a good, a good coach, but I think in the early days I got it 
mixed around the wrong way. Um, I didn't spend that much time with my players. Okay. Basically on the training track, um, the officers and the players were quite removed from, from each other. I spent a lot of those days watching videos um, in whether it's medical meetings, uh, marketing meetings, um, match committee, that sort of stuff. So days, you know, day ago past, I wouldn't see any of the players. And it got to the point we, we missed out in the finals the first two years, but I couldn't tactically do any more than I was or my preparation, I could not do any more. And hence, um, I changed that around after I got a book from um, from Skinny Brachel and Danny Frawley about um, thriving and surviving Gen Y. Oh. Um, huh. and, I, and I read it um, and I just threw all my coaching, the way I was doing it, out the window and I knew I could compete with the best coaches uh, tactically yes. um, on, on game day and, and how we were playing and, you know, uh, new things we were trying to experiment with or all that sort of stuff. And I just spent time with my players. That connection piece that we now see the Craig yep. McCrae's of the world talk about yep. consistently. And that, for me, turned us around 2005, 2006. We didn't do very well, but that was a lot of, that was a lot of my fault. I have to put my hand up for that. Um, you know, I was not around in the pre-season training because I had quite a little bit of depression um, and couldn't get out of bed. And then, you know, 2007, 2008, you know, were, were pretty good. Funny eyes. Pretty good years for us, you know. Um, and then, so when I've watched Damien Hardwick, you know, at the start of, you know, the Tigers run, how they changed it uh, and how he changed it and Nathan Buckley um, has done, and you see Craig McRae now, like, I, I look at that and go, yeah, well, that was me 10, ten years ago, and it stood, it stood the test of time, I think. More of Danielle's story in Part B. Thanks. 